Good morning. The preaching from the word today is going to come from Genesis 32, 1 through 21. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Maenaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau my brother meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are those ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third, and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. All right. I just thought something was going to catch on fire up here with all the popping, so as long as that's not the case. Well, if you have a copy of the scriptures, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 32. All right, I'm going to take my Bible off of this because my podium is... I am still going to preach from the Bible, everybody. This is, there's nothing symbolic about what I just did. Uh, but I don't want this to tip over, which it looks like it's going to do. Which I currently have a pulpit being built. So we'll, we'll uh, it'll be, mu- yeah, I know. Fancy. All right, well, let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful that your word is true. Uh, that your word remains uh, faithful, even these Old Testament texts and these old, old stories that we have been looking at uh, again and again, and just, just seeing how relevant they are to our lives right now in, uh, in 2023. And so, God, I pray that you would open up your word again today, that, um, that we would behold wonderful uh, uh, and magnific- magnificent things from it that we have never seen before, maybe. Uh, that you would teach us from uh, from the life of, of, of Jacob even, that we would um, see you more clearly through the way that you uh, are at work or at work in his life. Uh, so God, I pray that you would make the distractions in here minimal, um, that you would help us to, to focus our minds and our hearts on what you have to show us from your holy word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we have arrived at a part of the narrative of Jacob where things begin to speed up a little bit, you could say. You can almost feel the hand of God uh, at Jacob's back kind of pushing him along. 
But also, even as you read it, at least for me, I felt the hand of God kind of pushing me along as I read Jacob's story as he approaches uh, the land of his fathers once again. And the only problem with arriving closer and closer to home, at least for Jacob, is that he's also arriving closer and closer to his brother Esau, who he doesn't have a very good relationship with. The last time we heard from Esau, uh, he was comforting himself over his father's death with his plan to murder his brother Jacob. And so we left Jacob last week making this covenant with his father-in-law Laban, uh, basically saying, uh, if you come back, if you cross over these, these stones that we have erected, if you cross back over these, God will judge you. And essentially what that means is Laban and his family and his tribe uh, will go to war. You will die. And so you have death laying before, uh, behind him, um, but you also have Esau in front of him. And so Jacob is, is truly living out that old saying, uh, stuck between a rock and a hard place, or so he thinks. So I want us to look at two points this morning. Uh, one, uh, that, well, both of them that show us how God is at work in this particular situation. And I want us to see it through, one, the vision that Jacob receives at the beginning of the chapter, And secondly, I want us to see it through the prayer that Jacob prays kind of in the middle of our text this morning, okay? So we have the vision that Jacob receives and the prayer that Jacob prays. So first, the vision. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. So the fact that this part of the story begins with angels appearing to Jacob shows us God's part in all that is about to unfold for Jacob in chapters 32 and into chapters 33 that we'll, that we'll look at next week. Angels in the Bible are, are not there for mere decoration. They, when, when angels appear in the Bible, there is a reason for their appearance. Angels are, this is the, 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 a technical definition, but angels are, are God's spiritual messengers who perform missions on God's behalf. They're spiritual messengers for God. So whenever they appear in the Bible, you should pay attention. If an angel is coming to whoever it is in the Bible, you need to open your eyes wide and focus in on why they are coming because they are pointing to God and his wonderful works, every single time. So Jacob understands the significance of this moment, of this encounter with these angels, which is why he says in verse 2, this is God's camp. This is God's camp. And so this vision that Jacob has uh, with these angels here is, is the predominant theological idea of our text today. And the way we know this is because of where Moses has placed it uh, in this part of the story. He's put it at the beginning of this part of Jacob's story. So Moses, the author, wants his readers to understand that God is the one who is over all that has happened in Jacob's life, but he's also over everything that is about to happen in Jacob's life. So like I mentioned earlier, Jacob cannot go back to Padan Aram, to his father-in-law Laban. He has to move forward. The hand of God is pushing him forward. And to move forward, Jacob must trust that God is with him as he moves closer and closer to what he believes is a certain death. That is the only thing that is on Jacob's mind. And I wonder if you've ever been in a position like this, where you have something looming on the calendar that you are dreading. So something that, that is, is hard and, and maybe unavoidable, like you're, you're going to have to do this thing, whatever it, that thing might be. So maybe it's a difficult conversation that you need to have with a friend. You need to confront them on something or tell them something hard, and you have this coffee date 
planned out, and it's coming quickly. Or maybe you have a, a high-pressure uh, presentation that you have to give at work, and you don't like to be in front of people, and your job is kind of riding on it, and you think, it is coming, it is coming, it is coming. Every day it gets closer. Or maybe it's a hard decision that you have to make concerning a family member. Or maybe you're awaiting a diagnosis that has life-changing implications or even potentially life-ending implications. And so you're waiting, but the day approaches quicker and quicker. And time continues to push you toward it. It's, it the, the Steve Miller band... Um, came to my mind during this time, time keeps on slipping into the future. It just keeps moving closer and closer to it. So how do you deal with things like that? Do you avoid it? I mean, do you keep putting it off? And, you know, I'm, I'm going to, uh, hopefully an excuse will come up where I don't have to have this conversation. Do you ignore it and pretend like it's not real? Or... Do you prepare for it? Do you ready yourself in prayer? Do you ready yourself in the study of God's word? Do you ready yourself by seeking wisdom from others? Because this is what you should be doing. Because like Jacob, typically in these moments, uh, you do need uh, some sort of vision from God that does come about through the means that he's given you, which is uh, his word, prayer, and his people. And you need that. So if you can remember who God is and what he's, he's, he's doing in your life, it gives you much more confidence to move forward in whatever he may be calling you to do, even if it's difficult. So this is what Jacob understands, at least in verses 1 and 2. Because Esau is still on Jacob's mind. So in these 21 verses that Allison read for us, the name Esau comes up nine times. So that's about once for every paragraph, Esau's name. We haven't heard about Esau in 20 years. And then all of a sudden, it's like Esau, 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 Esau. So I know for me personally, if someone or some situation has affected me deeply or has caused me hurt or uh, is worrisome, that looming date on the calendar, I'll keep bringing that person up to other people, like talking about it, saying this is coming up, I, I have to do it's usually It's usually my wife who I, who I do that to. Uh, or I'll keep rehearsing the situation over and over and over again in my mind. So usually I know that that's something that's important or something that's bothering me. And this is what Jacob is doing. Esau, Esau, Esau. His fear of Esau is consuming his thoughts and directing his actions. And he has some reason for this because if you remember what his mother said to him in chapter 27, whom we haven't heard from either in uh, many a years, uh, after they have deceived Isaac and received the blessing, uh, she says to Jacob, remember this, Now therefore, my son, obey my voice, arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. And here's the part you need to hear. Then... I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then I will send and bring you from there. It's been 20 years. Not a word from his mother. I mean, she says, once his anger cools, I'm going to send a messenger to you, and I'm going to tell you, hey, it's good for you to come back home. So uh, he hasn't heard from his mother, as far as we know. So as far as Jacob knows, Esau was still comforting himself with the plan to kill him. So God sends these heavenly messengers to comfort his anxious heart. He sends these heavenly messengers to spur him on in his journey. Jacob, be strong and courageous. Be, Be brave. 
I'm with you. And to remind Jacob of his presence. Now, this was not just one angel who was just like, hey, Jacob, chill out. Everything's going to be okay. Uh, It's not just one angel that appears to Jacob. Uh, It says that God sent a host of angels. Uh, Jacob calls them a camp. So this is actually an army of angels that appear before Jacob. And this was a common occurrence in the lives of God's people. You see it throughout the Old Testament where angels are sent um, to God's people um, to remind them of different things. Um, Even if you jump over into the New Testament in the book of Acts, Acts alone, angels are all throughout it. And several times they're, they're seen encouraging and strengthening the saints in their walk with Christ. If you just think about Acts 1, the angels are sent as Jesus' ascension, uh, ascension to encourage the disciples in their mission. Their friend has just uh, went up into heaven, and they're, sitting, they're, they're standing there looking up into the sky, and the angels say, what are you doing? Now is it's time to be on mission. And then in Acts chapter 5, angels broke the apostles out of jail. Acts 7, Stephen refers to angels four times in his sermon before he's martyred. In Acts chapter 8, an angel of the Lord appears to Philip and told him to go down to the road to Gaza to meet the Ethiopian eunuch. In Acts 10, an angel appeared to a a centurion in Caesarea named Cornelius and told him to send for Peter. And then you have the Apostle Paul in Acts 27, 22-25, who is on this ship and they're, they're sailing across the ocean and the ship is about to go down. It's about to be shipwrecked. And this is what Paul says to those in the ship with him. And Paul's a prisoner at this time. He's locked up with every every other prisoner that's on this ship. He says, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted, to, granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. So even the Apostle Paul had to have angels sent to him to strengthen him and encourage him on his journey. So a common occurrence that is happening in Jacob's life now Yet Jacob doesn't respond in the way that you would think someone would respond when an army of angels approach them. Like Paul, who is now confident in what is about to happen, the angels don't come and say, hey, we're going to protect the ship, we're going to keep it all together, Um, don't worry about that. They say, no, the ship is going to wreck. You will be in the water, but you will not die. And Paul says, this is how it's going to go down. I believe this. Or then you have, I didn't mention this, but the shepherds at Jesus' birth, when the army of angels appear to them and tell them, announce the, the birth of their newborn king, what do they do? They run to go and see their king. Jacob does not do this. Look at verses 3 through 8. And also, as you listen to verses 3 through 8, listen to how many times Esau is mentioned here. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell, to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Even with a visit from a heavenly host, An army of angels. Jacob still lives in fear. Verse 7 is is just a perfect description. He was greatly afraid and distressed. 
And in his fear and anxiety over this situation, he once again attempts to take matters into his own hand. Because before, it was only Esau he feared. It was only Esau. So he knew he was going to at least have to face Esau. And I don't know about you, but if I had to face off with my brother, I would say, at least I have a little bit of a chance. But now, no offense to him, but now it's Esau and 400 men. Esau has an army with him. Now, Esau, as we'll learn later, was, was no longer angry. Uh, just a little a spoiler alert. He was no longer angry with his brother. But for all he knew, I mean, they haven't talked in 20 years. So for all he knew, Jacob was coming to claim his promised blessing and to make Esau his servant, along with all his other brothers. So Esau is just taking the necessary precautions. He's like, if Jacob is coming to do this, I am ready to fight for my rights here. So Jacob, in response to this news of 400 men coming with his brother, uh, decides to divide his camps into, into two, thinking... This will be a good strategy. This will keep my family safe because Jacob fully expects war. So something important to point out here in this interaction is uh, Moses' use of the word camp in verses 2, 7, and 8. So these two camps that Jacob divides his people into in verses 7 and 8 remind us or point us back to the two camps in verse 2 that Jacob names, when he names the place, the, the Mahanaim, which means two camps. He names it this because the two camps are his camp and God's camp. And by naming it this name, he was recognizing that God was with him and that he, he was to move forward in the strength of God, not in his own strength, which is what Jacob's pattern has been. But unfortunately, because of this outside pressure of knowing that there are 400 men coming with his brother, Jacob quickly forgets this. And by verses, seven, by verses 7 and 8, he has, uh, he has decided to do things on his own once again. And so he, he divides his own camp into two. And so I don't know about you, if you had 400 men coming to attack you, I, strength, there is strength in numbers, whether you have 150 or 50, you're going to have a better chance if you have everyone together. Jacob doesn't do this. He divides his camp. And what he does when he divides his camp is he weakens himself. So in his own strength, David or Jacob is weakening his own army. Now this is not hard to understand because we do it all the time, don't we? Maybe uh, it isn't an army of angels, but we have seen God answer our prayers. I know there there are prayers that we have prayed as a church that I have. I have visibly seen God answered, not just for myself, but for you as well, because I've prayed with you over that and prayed, uh, prayed, prayed for you in our missional communities and, and seen God answer prayer. And not just the, the specific prayer that you were asking for, but even in the midst of that prayer of how God was working in you and strengthening you and, and making you uh, grow in your maturity in Christ. I've seen that happen, and you know that's happened to you. You've seen God provide for you in unexpected ways. You've uh, seen God protect you, physically protect you, physically heal you, um, actually give you a spouse or give you a child that you were longing for or giving you a job that you needed to provide for yourself and or your family. That that God's given you a friend when you've needed it in in a certain moment in time. He's met you. And in those moments, you're strengthened. Your faith is strong and you're saying, praise the Lord. He has, he has answered this for me. And you, and you kind of ride on that, uh, that high that you're feeling until you hit a wall of despair again. Or fear enters in. 
or anxiety or depression or uh, someone's hurt you or, or now you have another need. And then what you do in the midst of that is you forget about what God has already done. And so by being anxious over it or being fearful over it uh, or, or starting to trust in yourself, what you're doing is what Jacob does. You are dividing your camp. You, you, are, you are weakening yourself instead of trusting in God and his strength. So what are you to do instead? Well, it's what we see Jacob do in our second point, which is his prayer to God, starting in verse 9, going through verse 12. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Jacob recognizes that he is in an an impossible situation. And this impossible situation rightly provokes him to pray. His thoughts in, in this moment are inexplicable fear and distress, and now he prays. Now, this is the first prayer that we've heard Jacob pray uh, in the narrative of his life. It's the first recorded prayer, at least. So he's interacted with God in a formal way, but not in an intimate way. And so in verses 3 through 5, Jacob does everything he knows to do. He's, he sends out messengers to, to try to uh, you know, slow Esau down. He, he's trying to, to appease him in every single way. And now at last he arrives where he should have began, which is in prayer. Now if you're anything like me, prayer seems to come as a secondary response in a given situ- situation when it should be the primary response. And not only a primary response where I'm just saying, God help me, or God provide for me in this way, or God do this thing for these people. Uh, the scriptures say that it is, it is to be an ongoing activity. That we are to always be, that we are to never cease from praying. So we easily fall victim to this old adage that says, when all else fails, pray. A lot of us fall into that trap. So in other words, when you've done everything you can, because that's a good bumper sticker, but this is what that really says. When you've done everything that you can do, and it doesn't work, that's when you turn to God for help. I mean, that's how a lot of us live our lives. And let me just tell you, that is an unbiblical idea and an unbiblical practice. Paul says in Philippians 4, instructing his readers, he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So that's, a, that's a very important uh, statement that Paul makes before he tells you how to pray. The Lord is at hand It happens in other places in Scripture. The Lord is near. That's important for you to understand in your prayer life, that that the Lord is near, which means he is attentive to your prayers. Okay? The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then... The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So our prayer is to strengthen us in what God is going to do. And through that strength, 
we have peace. Now, admit the 400-man army may still be coming towards us. But even in that, we can have peace with God. Michael Reeves in his, uh, it's a little booklet. It's actually a booklet, not a book. It's like 60 pages long. So it's really short. I think there's a copy of it out there. Um, But it's called Enjoy Your Prayer Life. So if you haven't read it, I'd, I'd say pick it up. But he says this about prayer. Prayer is enjoying the care of a powerful father instead of being left to a frightening loneliness where everything is all down to you. Does that resonate with anybody here? Prayer is the antithesis of self-dependence. It is our no to independence and our no to personal ambition. It is the exercise of faith that you need God and are a ready receiver. So we could say, just from observation, that Jacob's besetting sin is that he is self-dependent. He, he likes to make his own way. He likes to forge his own path. He's a self-made man. Jacob's way was deceit and lying. Never once does he cry out to God in prayer until now. Because, like I said earlier, Jacob is stuck between a rock and a hard place. He has nothing else that he can do. No amount of deceit or lying or or, or trying to turn the situation is going to help. He can't go back to Padamaram. He can't go back to Laban because Laban would kill him. So he has an army behind him. But he has to go back to his homeland. But his brother is there and as far as he knows, also wants him dead. And so an army is coming towards him. And so Jacob realizes that no level of deceit can get him out of this mess. No level of works that he could do could, could, could save him from death. He is experiencing, as, as Michael Reeves said, a frightening loneliness. And then he turns to God in prayer. So I want, to, I want you to see the, the three parts that make up Jacob's prayer because I believe it can be helpful to your own prayer life. Okay, so three parts to it. The first part is the reminders of God's promises by praying God's word back to him. So Jacob books in his prayer like this in verse 9 and in verse 12. In verse 9 he prays this. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. So Jacob is praying back something that God has already said to him. And then in verse 12, to end the prayer, he says, but you said, but God, you said this, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. You said that, God. And so by doing this, Jacob is is reminding God of his promises and that he believes God's promises uh, have have brought him to this point in his life. And just so you know that I know that God doesn't need reminding, God is fully aware of his purposes and promises toward Jacob, but he's also fully aware of his purposes and promises toward you. The reminding is mainly for us. We need reminding of his purposes and promises, and these are all found in the scriptures. And and Jacob does just that by reminding God of his command to return home, and, and in verse 12 reminds him of the promise God originally made to Abraham back in Genesis 15, that his offspring would be a multitude. Jacob is even even pushing back even further into into his family history to say, you made this promise to my grandfather, and I'm part of this promise. So this is how you can apply this in your own prayer life. By By praying God's promises back to him over whatever it is that you are walking through currently. So I'll just ask, I'll just do a couple for you. Demonstration. Are you anxious? 
Anxiety is one of the uh, one of the one of the top three medical diagnoses, uh, I think, right now. I don't know if Trey's here or not. If he can nail me on that, but but I, I know last time I looked, it's one of one. Of, it's in the top ten. Let's just say it that way. When people come into the doctor, they are diagnosed with anxiety or depression. So, are you anxious? Very good chance there's a lot of you here who are. Pray Matthew six thirty one through thirty three. And it could sound like this. You don't have to copy this down. Jesus, you tell me in your word, do not be anxious because my heavenly Father is attentive to all my needs and he will provide. My responsibility is to seek first your kingdom. God, help me to do this. To seek your kingdom before everything else, knowing that in your kingdom, my anxieties are banished at the gates. Help me to trust you for what I need right now. Amen. Are you depressed? This is one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 88, that ends with uh, the, the, the wonderful, encouraging line, darkness is my closest friend, period. That's it. Pray Psalm 88 if you're depressed. God of my salvation, your, your word tells me that in you is no darkness at all, but I feel as though darkness is my closest friend right now. I cry out to you day and night. Let my prayer come to you. Incline your ear to my cry. Help me to see your light once again. Amen. So the first part of Jacob's prayer is to pray back God's word to him. Remind God of, your, of those promises uh, while also at the same time especially reminding yourself about God's promises to you. The second part of Jacob's prayer is confession. Look at verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant for with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. So Jacob confesses now what is true about himself. And let me just, as an as a interesting side note, uh, the closer that you get to God, the, the more that you are drawing near to God, and as he is drawing near to you, the more you, yes, you are going to know about God, but also the more you will know about yourself. So that the closer you pull yourself to, to, to the cross, the more you will see your own sin and sinful desires and behaviors. And this is what is happening to Jacob. Jacob, like all of us, is recognizing that he is unworthy of God's grace and mercy. He knows that to be true about himself. All he has to do is look back over his life and have this truth confirmed for him. I mean, he deceived his father. If that's the only one that we want to camp on, he deceived his father in such an evil way. And God still loves him, and God still cares for him. So I think this is why one of, the, um, one of Paul's themes in, in his letters to the churches he ministered was, was this idea that, that everything was from God, that we have no reason to boast in and of ourselves because it is all from God. So Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9 is a great example of this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So it's all of God. And Jacob now knows this to be true, and we hear it in his confession. He knows that he is not worthy that he is not able to do uh, the things that he needs to do to save himself. So in the Hebrew sense of Jacob's confession here, it reads like this. I have been and still am unworthy. Jacob's not saying, I, I used to be unworthy and now I'm worthy and so now, God, you can receive, receive me. He is saying, I have been and I continue to be unworthy. So this is similar to the prayer that the tax collector prays. If you uh, remember in Luke chapter 18, verse 13, when the Pharisee comes before them and, and, and he has this very prideful prayer and then you have this tax collector who's standing in the back and says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, 
God be merciful to me, a sinner. I have been and still am unworthy. So as Jacob and the tax collector demonstrate, to confess your sin means to admit your own unworthiness apart from Christ. Apart from supernatural intervention that turns your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Which leads Jacob to this third part of his prayer, which is petition. So praying God's word back to him, reminding him of his promises, uh, repenting of your sins, confession of your sin, and now petition. Verse 11. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mother's with the children. So simply put, petition is, is, is simply just asking God for help. Asking God to intervene. You, you probably do this daily in, if you're a regular prayer. And even if you're not a regular prayer, even if you're not even a believer uh, in Jesus yet, I'm sure you've shouted out some prayers over your lifetime that were prayers of petition. God, help me. Keep me safe. Help me to pass this test or whatever it might be. So this is probably what we practice most in our prayer lives. We, we do this in our missional communities. We take prayer requests. And so we have re- request after request after request. And those are our petitions to God. And those are good for us to have. Jacob here prays specifically for what is happening in his life in real time. He needs help in his fear. He needs help in his situation and does the right thing by asking God to do so. God, help me. Deliver me from the hand of my brother. And just jumping ahead a little bit, he answers that prayer. So when you are in distress or you need to make a decision, you should be crying out to God. You should be petitioning God for whatever request it might be. Now, this is a good prayer from Jacob, but it is missing a couple of elements. So the first thing it's missing, his own acknowledgement that the God of his father and the God of his grandfather is his God as well. In verse 9, he says, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. And he stops there. He doesn't say my God or anything of that nature. That's where he stops. So that's one thing that's wrong with Jacob's prayers. He is not, uh, he is not initiating these prayers uh, on behalf of, of, of God being his God. The second thing he's missing is his own actions after he prays are not filled with faith in God, but rather penance for his sin against his brother. Even after he has this heavenly vision um, from, uh, this, of these angels, these heavenly beings coming down before him, uh, he prays this, this, this prayer that is engaging God in an intimate way, recognizes his own, recognizing his own depravity and sin and brokenness and unworthiness. He still acts out of fear. And that's just a good way to say, like, when we pray, it doesn't mean we do nothing after we pray. So if we're praying, God, please restore the relationship with, um, with, my, uh, with my spouse, because we, we, we have some walls built up and there's some bitterness, and you just kind of sat back and did nothing, it's probably not going to be an answer to prayer there. There's action involved that God is going to use. So this is what Jacob does instead. Look at verses 13 through 21. I'm going to read these for us again. This is right after he prays. So he stayed there that night, and from, the, from what he had, had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking cows and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, 
pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. So he instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who follow the droves. You shall see the same, say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. So two more things to point out in these verses here that show us that Jacob was trying to essentially pay for his sins. He was trying to to do penance for his sin that he committed against his brother Esau. And the way that he was trying to do this was he was trying to change his reality by using his wealth and his words, which is something I believe we are all guilty of at some level. We try to change our reality with what we have and with what we say. And neither one of these works for Jacob. So we see this first in sending 550 animals to Esau, drove after drove. This was a symbolic attempt by Jacob to return to Esau the blessing he had stolen from him 20 plus years ago. It was his, I'm sorry, to Esau. It was his attempt to appease Esau. Maybe this will cushion the blow a bit. But he didn't need to do this. God had clearly confirmed to Jacob and to his entire family with the blessing that Isaac gives to him upon his departure that he was the one who was supposed to receive the blessing. It was told to them at birth that that would happen. So that's the first thing. The second thing is heard in the way Jacob refers to himself as Esau's servant and refers to Esau as, you heard it, my Lord Esau. So now this might just sound like a, like a, like a Jacob being humble and sweet to his, to his brother and, and using these names you know, to, to, to say, I am crawling on my belly before you. And maybe there is some attempt at that. But this was actually another attempt to restore the precedence that their father's blessing had taken from Esau. If you remember Isaac's words to Esau in chapter 27, this distressing scene where uh, that Jacob has just found out and, and Isaac is shaking um, with fear because he knows he's done wrong in trying to bless his son Esau. And then Esau returns to find out that not only has he been deceived by his brother once, but now it's been twice and everything he thinks has been taken from him. So he is begging, screaming, wailing to his father to bless him. And Isaac says to Esau, Behold, I have made him, Jacob, Lord over you, Esau. And all his brothers I have given to him for servants. So what's really happening there is is a recognition that there is no changing the promise or promises that God gives to his people. No matter what gifts are sent or, or, or what titles are used, there is no assuaging uh, Esau's supposed wrath that is coming for Jacob. Nothing he can do. Esau still marches forward. So Jacob sends on everyone and everything ahead of him. And he's left alone. We'll see that, that, that uh, later in the text next week. But he's left alone at the back of the procession, procession is Jacob, fearful Jacob. He had come to the end of himself here in every single way, preemptively thinking that, that he had lost everything he had earned. He lost his family because he sends them on ahead of, ahead of him. So he's lost his family. He's, he's lost his wealth. He's, he's, he's even lost his very life. I mean, he is... Marching towards his death, he thinks. Everything is gone. And you know what? 
This is exactly where God wants him to be. I mean, you've heard that said where you're, you, you hit rock bottom, and, you know, and sometimes we say, well, they're not going to know what they've done wrong until they hit rock bottom. And you're like, well, what is rock bottom? And, and it's different for lots of different people. Um, but, for, but for Jacob, this was his rock bottom. He's lost everything. Everything that he has earned, everything that he has depended upon to bring him happiness and peace and joy is gone. And this is where God wants him. He wants him to be alone. He wants him to feel that loneliness. He wants him fearful. He wants him to feel the fear that is coming before him. Because he wants Jacob to depend completely on him. And when you surround yourself with comfort, you surround yourself with wealth, and you surround your, yourself with people who just pat you on the back and, and they're your, your yes men and women, you will never feel any of this. You will never understand your, your need of God. And so maybe that's where you are now. Maybe, maybe your marriage is on the rocks. Maybe your kids aren't behaving as you'd like. They're, they're in trouble at school or whatever it might be. Maybe your home is chaos. Maybe you are feeling lonely. Maybe you've, you've lost a job or, or you're in a job and you don't like it and so you're, you're suffering through it every single day but you're hating life in the midst of it and not being thankful. So I don't know about you, but, but every time, nearly every time, that I've, that I've grown uh, significantly in my walk with Jesus is, is having to walk through something that is difficult and hard and brings suffering. Hard conversation, being sick, whatever it might be. Something that has really changed me usually comes with pain or suffering. So maybe instead of trying to get out of whatever it is you're trying to get out of, if you're trying to escape the suffering that, that God may have you and you're trying to run from it or ignore it or, uh, or whatever you might be doing to kind of like numb the pain, maybe you should instead embrace it and, and, and look for God in the midst of it. In asking the question, what could God, what is God trying to tell me? What is God trying to teach me in this situation because remember God is good he's a good father so he's not going to give you he's not going to give you rocks when you ask for bread he's a good father who provides for everything that you need and he knows exactly what you need and if suffering or whatever it might be is what you need in the moment to draw you closer he's doing that out of his love for you So even asking the question, pondering the question, could he be drawing you further up and further in to the gospel as he is doing to Jacob? It's something to think about. Let's pray.